Welcome back to Millennial Mental Health. I'm Stephanie Contra O'Hara, licensed professional counselor, and I have today with me Emily Ringle, who's also a licensed professional counselor, and I'm going to have her introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Emily Ringle. I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage family therapist um, based in Colorado. Um, I am the owner and primary therapist of a little practice known as uh, Aiding Therapy Services. Uh, we're based in Broomfield. Um, primarily, um, our caseloads are kids from ages 5 through 19 and their families, though we do also see adults. Um, specializing in anxiety, depression, trauma, essentially. <laughs> okay, great. See, I think my question mark was, I feel like there's also something that I'm missing here and that it was the <laughs> marriage and family therapist part. So no I apologize worries. for questioning that. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so today we're going to talk about something that's uh, near and dear to Emily's heart, which is socially anxious children and teens. And so my first kind of question is like, what kind of drew you to this population and why do you remain interested in working with them? Um, because I'm a socially anxious, awkward adult. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's the uh, very, uh, you know, nickel answer on that one. But um, I see myself in a lot of these kids. Um, being the shy, introverted kid, maybe a little dorky, maybe a little nerdy, that maybe has a little bit of difficulty either making friends or sustaining those friendships and understanding a little bit of those interactions. Um, so that's what's drawn me to that population of the boat the most. And um, it allows me to be show a little bit more of that dorky goofy side. Um, not that I'm not myself with adults, but it's different. Like kids, there's, they, they can really see through any um, facade that you might bring up. So you can let your guard down a little bit and um, celebrate in the weirdest way and just be totally authentic with them. That's great. I oftentimes think therapists focus on things that have been near and dear in their own life and have impacted them. And that kind of becomes the thing that they tend to, to focus on, or maybe it's a certain modality, right? If you were raised as an artist, maybe you become an art therapist. If you were always into horses, maybe you find yourself drawn to equine therapy. So it sounds like socially awkward children and teens, you were drawn to that because it kind of near and dear to your heart for personal reasons. Correct. Correct. Um, it still is, you know, like I said, I'm a socially anxious, awkward adult. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hopefully it can make you as comfortable as possible on this podcast. <laughs> no worries there. Okay. So my next thought is what kind of modality works best with, with, um, these teens and children who are socially anxious? What have you found that maybe other therapists can be aware of if they find themselves with a socially anxious um, child or teen in their office, or maybe even parents, what it, they should know about this? So it does depend um, a bit on age. Um, I'm not going to play, well, I'm not necessarily going to play a board game with a teenager, whereas I would with a child. Um, 
so in in that in that way like the quote unquote traditional modes where it's like you know a little bit more play therapy with the elementary school aged kids and then a little bit um, more talk therapy with middle school and up however um, art does seem to help art based interventions uh, seem to help a lot with um, socially anxious kids because a lot of them tend to be very expressive and creative um, none of them have taken me up on doing any of like the theater arts in in uh, sessions so I'm still working on that um, but more experiential activities so I'll give an example in that I have a kiddo well I've done this with a couple kiddos but um, in about sixth grade so 11 roughly and talking about confidence and part of that is like you know walking around the halls in my office and practice walking confidently in their posture um, and how does that feel and you know when you exaggerate a slouching un, uh, unconfident posture how does that wear on the body versus having a more confident posture um, you know in when the weather's nice uh, walking outside can help ease conversation and I do often relay that to parents um, because eye contact can be intimidating it can be seen as a challenge um, especially in, in the animal kingdom and even in a lot of cultures that still is seen that way that direct eye contact is uncomfortable um, it is something that's valued in main US stream mainstream US culture is direct eye contact when you're talking to an individual but that can be very confrontational so especially with your teens who may not be wanting to talk and whatnot it's the walking side by side allows for that for your conversation because it's not so challenging in that moment so those are some of the things I've seen and the biggest thing that I alluded to earlier is willingness to admit my own dorkishness um, sometimes the um, especially the teens will cringe be like oh my gosh <laughs> and, and all of it's like, I know, it's cringeworthy, it's cheesy, I get it. But, like, I just let them know, like, hey, here's some of my interests, here's uh, dorkiness. Um, my sister um, played a song for me when she was here for Thanksgiving um, by the same people who did the It's Raining Taco song. So I played that for a few kids. And with the warning, it was like, hey, this is a really fun but really cheesy song. And they get the gamut of responses but at least it kind of helps lower that guard a little bit like if i'm willing to be silly and goofy then um they're willing to let their guard down a little bit yeah so i imagine being as relaxed as you possibly can be and as true yes. to yourself as you can be without being seen as necessarily some sort of authority figure allows them to really open up and explore ways to be more confident in other social relationships exactly and that even comes down to like how i dress like today i'm a little bit more dressed up than i would normally be um a because it's cold outside <laughs> and um so i'm wearing like um, a sweater and jeans but um no and b because of the interview um but i rarely if ever wear business dress in my office um, and that's because I want kids and teenagers to be able to connect with me. 
And if, especially with the younger elementary school age, so this is your kindergarten, first to second grade, um, I might be playing down on the floor in the sand or um, with a dollhouse, or if we're doing an art-based intervention like painting or making slime, um, all that can be hard on business clothes, business slacks. Um, and I don't wanna be letting my clothing get into the way of being able to be fully present and participating in interaction. I think so. that's fair. I also wanted to kind of circle back around to that eye contact um, comment that you made. I, as I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as socially anxious um, person. I am a little bit more introverted, I would say, but in, like interacting doesn't cause anxiety. And I even find like eye contact, like a strange thing sometimes, like in sessions when I'm like, oh, I need to be looking like right at them. And it's like, well, how long do you look at them? Do you need to like look away if you've been looking for too long? Like, you know, you have these like dialogues that are like in your head. And yeah. I feel like it just takes away from any sort of conversation, whether it's one that I have with a client or a friend or like a, an authority figure, like having this pressure to need to look someone in the eyes, I think would yeah. create co internal conflict for any person. So I think that maybe it's even a general rule of thumb that most people can walk away, hopefully with this conversation or most parents, like it's not necessarily super important to force your child or your teenager to always be making eye contact. You want to make sure you have their attention, obviously, and they're not like right. looking at their phone while you're communicating with them. But how important is it to literally be looking at their eyes? Right, exactly. Exactly. You bring up a good point. And if you're always, if you're so focused on the eye contact, how are you going to be in a group setting? You know, the, I, I, was noticed, I was working with a couple actually um, yesterday. And at a certain point, I was like thinking to myself, like, okay, I got to make sure I look at the husband, you know, <laughs> and just like making a conscious effort to make sure I wasn't focusing on just one um, person in the couple. But it can, you know, if you have a teenager who's trying to talk with a group, you know, it can be a lot of pressure to make sure you everyone is feeling heard and seen and whatnot. And then the same and it can be detrimental. It's like, are you putting so much emphasis on the eye contact that you're not even hearing what the person's saying? Um, eye contact is only just one aspect of nonverbal communication. Um, and and I, I talk with kids about that, kids and teens, um, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when it was like just strictly 100% telehealth. Um, I have a cat at home um, that for various reasons I can't bring to the office, but um, I would pick him up and use him as a way, as a tool with my kids and teens on nonverbal communication um, and have them describe to me what they think my cat was feeling at the time and how could they tell he was feeling that. Um, most of the time he was a little um, nonplussed <laughs> or um, just uh, irritated with me because he wanted to be near me but not picked up and not to be shown off like a, like a flower piece so the kids and teens would be able to say like well you know he looks tense or you know his claws are spread or you know whatever and and that's a different um thing that i work with them on especially the socially anxious teens because it's like 
knowing that there's different ways to read people, but not that you have to focus on any one thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm curious. We live in a very different time now than maybe some of their parents grew up in, right? Like if someone's a teenager, I imagine their parents are maybe either an older millennial or like a gen X. X. I was about to say the other one, <laughs> but so they're Gen <laughs> Z, right? So I was about to confuse yeah. the two. Anyways, so those two generations, I imagine, grew up in very different time, right? I oftentimes have parents come in my office and it's like, my kid will not stop staring at their phone or they have so many friends online, but they don't have a lot of friends in person. And how do we like try to have them, encourage them to have friends in person? And I imagine you probably run into some of that in your line of work too. So what do you find to be maybe other differences that maybe Gen X and older millennials might have compared to their children that are like Gen Zers? I'll start with that question and then I have a follow up one. Okay. So one of the, th you know, cause I'm considering myself, well, I am a millennial and I'm considering myself more of the older millennial part. Um, it catches up with me when I tell the teens, when I think back as to when I graduated high school and it was before most of these teenagers were even born. So, you know, way to feel young there, right? Yeah, I, I <laughs> um, didn't even exist until I graduated college. So that's, and I feel really old thinking about that. I'm like, iPads have always been around. No, they haven't. <laughs> 2010. Well, I, saw, well I, I remember actually the other day I saw this meme on Facebook, how like uh, there was a group um, when Lady Gaga was at NYU trashing her. And there were some of the comments like, Facebook didn't have groups back then. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, it did. It just looked different. And then just like that disconnect, <laughs> just like made me feel ancient. But you know, that's an aside. So what I tell kids and teens, especially in terms of like, specifically the pandemic, the Generation Z has had to deal with something, do something that no other generation before them has had to do, and that is attend school full time during a pandemic. Um, because in pandemics and epidemics of past, schools would be shut down for however, however long, and there would be no expectation of having to continuously try to learn under those conditions, whereas this generation has had to still continue doing that. And um, not to get all, you know, soapboxy or anything like that, but I do think that has had some um, rep significant repercussions on their anxiety and overall mental health. Um, other differences I see, well, I do see phones, and, and, I, and I am pretty honest with the kids, especially in elementary school, about my feeling about phones. Um, I do talk about, you know, screen usage time and how that can impact the brain and whatnot. Um, TikTok is sometimes the bane of my existence. <laughs> um, well, just because like of all the different challenges, but at the same time, you know, for all the differences that we see, there's a lot of similarities, uh, you know, like going back to the TikTok challenges, like, you know, how distractive some of those can be. But it's also like teens have been doing stupid things for time immemorial. You know, the school pranks, the um, just the, the different like risks teens have taken, like it, that's part of their brain. And it's like, yeah, it looks different. And it's there's 
more at risk now because the advent of social media and you know bullying is far worse now because it can be anonymous online and whatnot but at the same time in this age group that we're t talking about kids and teens kids and teens have been pretty similar since ever mm -hmm. um i mean i'm sure you can think of some some of those stupid things either yourself or your siblings or classmates did when you were in high school. <laughs> um, and I, and I sometimes share some of that with my teens, um, especially like, yeah, don't do this. <laughs> like learn from my mistake, you know, don't, the story I'll tell is like, don't pull, uh, don't turn left on a red light with the cop right behind you. Not the smartest <laughs> thing to do. Um, and just kind of, I oftentimes find myself when I work with parents and teens, uh, I don't work oftentimes with children, but with parents and teens, like letting the parents kind of talk to their teens about their own mistakes and not in a way of like, you better not make the same mistake that I do, right. but in a way that I made mistakes too. And I'm going to hold you accountable for actions that, you know, need consequences, but like, I also don't want to find yourself or find myself shaming you or guilting you for something that I would have done myself during that time. Because um, mm -hmm. I think that conversation is super important because I think a lot of anxiety can be created in a teenager if they're like terrified of what their parents might think or what their peer group might think of their behaviors or everything outside of themselves just creates more anxiety, the more pressure that is uh, placed upon them to be a certain way. I, I agree with that. And uh, when the times I do family therapy with teens and, and parents, I talk about how a lot of times kids and te uh, teens and parents want the same thing. It's just that they're not communicating it in a way that can be heard. Um, and so sometimes I'm kind of like that little translator um, <laughs> in the in the middle there. Um, it can be hard for some parents to be able to say like, yeah, this is the mistakes that I made um, when I when I was a teenager. And mostly it's the fear that um, teens will throw it back in their face. Like, well, you did this. Why can't I? And you know, talking through that, it's like, no, I think it's coming from like, hey, how much pain did this cause? Yeah. Um, how many problems did this cause? I do think sharing, I did this and this was the consequence is super important, right? So you're not going to be free of consequences, even though I chose that. I remember right. this is my own story of when I was a kid, my dad was like, oh yeah, I used to like ride motorcycles and like jump my friends with my dirt bikes and ha ha ha, so much fun. And I also ended up in the hospital because I broke my leg from trying to jump something like a ravine sort of situation. And then another time I got pulled over and I had a $300 fine for speeding on my motorcycle and like all of these consequences, right? So like, yes, I was reckless and I drove around on my motorcycle like a crazy person and I suffered consequences for it. And so that's why I don't want you to do the same thing. You know, and, and that brings to mind something that I, um, I actually just got off the phone prior to this with my sister and, you know, talked about like, you know, honesty is something that I value. 
Does that mean that I'm 100% honest all the time? Not necessarily, but I do strive towards that. So some I tell teens right off the bat, like my rule is like I'm gonna ask you questions and you can tell them that, tell me if you don't wanna answer them. And likewise, you can ask me any question and I'll let you know if I feel uncomfortable answering it right now. And any question that teens ask, I typically, I, I will give them an honest answer. Like, you know, if they ask me, you know, have you ever felt this way or whatever? It's like, yeah, you know, this and this is how that situation happened. And I'm not saying that my choices or were right or wrong, you know, and that they would work for you. Here's what the consequences were of those choices. Um, and hopefully you can take something from it and learn um, and apply it to your life appropriately. I think sometimes the hardest thing for parents can, and not that parents are dishonest by nature. I've certainly met a few of my uh, the parents that I work with with their um, kids that are really honest, and it's like, you know, that's fantastic, and I commend them for that. But I think a lot of parents want to hide things from their kids, you know, like kind of project a different version of themselves than they actually were. And, and kids are smart. Kids are smart. Um, and so, like, helping them, like, you know, be honest. It doesn't mean that you have to divulge every single little detail of your life. But if your kid your kid needs to be able to trust you. Um, and so honesty is one way to do that. And also consistency. Like, if you say that you're going to ground them for XYZ, then you ground them for XYZ and you do it for the time that you said you were going to do that. Yes. I imagine that this is kind of talking more about anxiety in kids, but it might impact them socially too. I think the, the grounding thing is like really, I guess more, what's a good word. It's come up recently in my practice. And so I feel like it's more top of mind. There we go. That's the word. Um, because sometimes parents I find will ground their kids, but they don't give them like an end date. So then they become anxious because their friends are like, when are you going to be able to hang out? When are you going to hang out? When can you hang out? When are you going to hang out? And then they have all of this anxiety about like, I don't know what to tell my friends. Like, I don't want to tell them no, because I don't want to reject them. But I also want to like not get in trouble because my parents said that I'm grounded. And I just like, don't know like what's going to happen next. And I feel like that's maybe not social anxiety, but it creates like this anxiety between them and them, their friends. And then also like between them and their parents. And it's like this right. whole like complex mess. And it's like, well, maybe if we just like said, this is your, you're grounded. And this is the specific time that you're grounded for, unless you do something else that would warrant further grounding. Right. Well, you know, uh, and, and I agree with you in that it's not necessarily social anxiety, but it does contribute to perhaps some social anxiety there. Um, consistency, I think, re regardless of the type of anxiety, I think is helpful. Uh, one thing that parents don't often think about is that irritability can be a sign of anxiety. I mean, and to be fair, irritability can be a sign of any mental health issue, depression, you know, PTSD, whatever. But, um, you know, not having that end date can breed resentment, you know, uh, especially when you're a teenager, because then you're like, well, why am I being treated like a little kid, etc., etc. And then, you know, 
you have to give the kids a reason to because it's like um the because I said so doesn't work with a lot of my teens and kids um and you know it's like did it work with you as a as a kid some parents might say well yes because that you know was a different time and blah 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 blah. um but ultimately it doesn't work and it's because it's like there's no reason given to it um i tell a lot of my um kids especially my teens um and this i think works for like general anxiety and social anxiety in that it's not asking too much to be respected you know sometimes social anxiety can come in like the aspect of talking to parents um and i think at the end of the day parents want their teens to be able to come and open up to them you know and having those conversations of as to like why is there grounding why is it for this long another trick that i've used with parents that's like okay it can it, it, it helps in two ways it helps them accountability becomes stronger and it helps with their confidence in that rather than the parent imposing the punishment why not have the kid or the teenager come up with what they think an appropriate punishment would be for whatever that transgression would be and nine times out of ten well, let's say eight times out of ten the kid will either come up with something that's like very appropriate or a far harsher punishment than the parent would come up with and then it's like okay and then we can talk about like all right you know three three week grounding for you know a smart mouth comment it's probably a little excessive you know like maybe let's uh come it come down a little bit and come to a happy compromise there and that could actually help those relationships as well i completely agree having a collaborative conversation around like consequences and what are expected behaviors or what can earn and lose like trust and respect. I think those conversations need to happen, especially between teens um, and adults. You know, children obviously need more guidance, um, but hopefully if you, you know, start at that age, by the time they're teenagers, they can have those types of conversations with their parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, I have another question. I don't want to interrupt you. Did you have something else you wanted to say? Well, and just like with, you know, if you're able to have those conversations with your kids and teens, then that'll allow them to have those tougher conversations that can be socially anxiety inducing as an adult, AKA confronting their boss. (laughs) And, you know, those types of things. That was, that was the only thing I was going to say. Well, yeah, I don't know the statistics, but I would imagine people who have social anxiety or more socially anxious probably also are conflict avoidant and adults need to have the skills to have conflicts that don't end in aggressive behaviors or passive aggressive behaviors. So if you practice that with your you know, teen when they're 14, 15, maybe even younger, they'll be able to do it when they're 25 and their bosses being unreasonable or when they're in a relationship with a romantic partner that, you know, maybe is not necessarily treating them well. They'll be able to have those conversations and know what they know how to confront that and be able to express what they deserve and respect and deserve in relationships that will help them maintain their self-respect. 
There we go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, so I have one more question. What do you think may be happening in society or in our culture that adds the environmental factors that perpetuate socially anxious teenagers and children? <laughs> That's a big side question. It's like, okay, so how much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't think the pandemic helped, honestly. Now, there are some that of my socially anxious kids that actually love the telehealth option and did a little bit better remote learning because they didn't have to be around other kids and they also became more anxious with the thought of having to return to school because they hadn't returned to school in some time so it's that double-edged sword there so like i don't think the pandemic helped um i at least in the United States, I would say, so back to, you know, how I said earlier that teens have been teens like the same forever. Um, teens today are super socially and politically conscious. Um, I know certainly when I was a teenager, we were socially and politically conscious, but um, and possibly even before. Um, think about, you know, the 60s with the Vietnam era. Um, there was a Supreme Court case. Um, I know it took place in Des Moines, like the students were in Des Moines, but wearing like some sort of um, armband against, um, not uh, like a nonviolent form of protest and because they were teenagers, you know, the question was whether or not they were subjected to the protections under the First Amendment, whatever. But, uh, so like, it has happened in times before, but the, the, this generation seems to have taken it to a new level, that social and political consciousness. And sometimes that can have an impact, um, having to have those conversations um, with people who are have the different uh, viewpoints than you, um, especially when those are individuals in your own family. Um, let's see, what are things that are contributing? Um, climate change is certainly contributing to the social anxiety and general anxiety. Um, a few of my kids have experienced quite a bit of anxiety around environmental issues. And it's also an opportunity. You know, the, the, the biggest thing about social anxiety at any age is that one of the ways to help social anxiety is to do social things. And, so it's like exposure therapy, basically. Exactly. You know, it's kind of like, oh, the, med the medicine is also the, you know, the, well, it's not the medicine is also the cure. The um, ailment is also the cure type of thing. I'm not exactly sure how that goes, but it's like, the thing that causes you harm is also the thing that can help. And so that is one tool that I've used. Like, you know, if there's any sort of like green team groups at school, at your high school, like maybe that's something that you can do there so that you feel like you can make some sort of impact or difference. Um, you know, because like the biggest thing about social anxiety is that the lie we tell ourselves is that, you know, there's no one else like us. There's no one else that wants to be friends 
with us. So in some ways, there's like a lot more resources, which can be really overwhelming. But then once you're able to find the things that would work for you, it can be helpful as well. I think um, social, social media has definitely had both a positive and negative impact. Um, I know I kind of made a sort of derisive comment about TikTok, but Snapchat's not any better sometimes. <laughs> and Instagram can also be pretty detrimental, but it can also be very helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, the advent and increase of uh, video games and online games can also exacerbate some of the social anxiety, but it also is a way for people to connect. Yes. So there's there's just so much yeah. there that it's like really hard to point point. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, how much time do you have? It's like, there's so many things that can add to it and also um, improve it. Yeah. So two things that I, I thought of while you were saying that is, I think the feature uh, on Snapchat where it'll tell you where someone is or whether they've been active recently can really increase anxiety in teens. Like, why haven't they messaged me back? Or, hey, four of my friends are together, but I wasn't invited. And, like, the anxiety just builds, the the feelings of rejection or betrayal build. And it's like, well, now I don't know how to talk to them. If they're all going to hang out without me, like, who am I? I'm not that important if they didn't invite me. And it's like all of this anxiety and it's a lot. And then the other thing that popped into my mind was, this isn't new, obviously, but is definitely much more present. It feels like to me, at least compared to my high school experience, is like sexual orientation and like gender identification oh my gosh, yes. and like going through those transitions and trying to figure out who they are while other people are watching them figure out who they are and just who am I based on related to in relation to this person or who am I based on this relationship and like kind of this fluidness that exists around th- this, I think creates a lot of social dynamics amongst teenagers that could easily have like both positive and negative repercussions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like that's, um, I've seen it more now than, and not that I'm like super old or anything like that, but it's definitely more apparent now, especially in terms of gender identity. And some of the anxiety for some of the kids is like having to put a label on it. You know, uh, I can think of several clients where it was like, you know, is it important to know right now? And for some, the answer was yes. So it was like, someone's like, no, it's just something I'm exploring. Okay, great. You know, let's let's talk about that as well. Um, you know, because it's like, there's also this confusion too, like uh, just briefly in terms of like um, gender identity that, a person's expression equates with their identity. And, you know, if I like, you know, painting my nails and wearing eyeliner, but am assigned male at birth, does that mean I'm actually transgender? And the answer is like, no, not necessarily. You know, it could mean that. It could also mean that 
you know, you just happen to have a more androgynous or non-binary um, expression, a.k.a. David Bowie and Prince, you know, <laughs> or Annie Lennox for that matter, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me as a therapist is like having the willingness to being willing to have those conversations. Um, cause I'll talk about all kinds of like awkward things. Like, um, with my tweens, I'll talk about puberty with them. And usually they give me like the whole going bright red and being uncomfortable, but then they're like, okay at least she gets able to have these conversations so I can talk to her about these questions. And then with my um, high schoolers, you know, talking about using safer sex practices and stuff like that and talking about relationships because relationships are definitely a source of huge source of social anxiety as to whether or not they're in one, number one. And number two is like, oh, I like this person, but I don't know if I should tell them that I like them because they're a friend. And, and I'm like, kiddo I've been there <laughs> here's the options here's what they could say you know stuff like that like I think um and, I, and 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 like you said like it's that's you know this has happened before but sometimes it feels a little bit more heightened um yeah with this new generation well there's so much probably more that we could talk about um because this is like a very complex topic but I want to I guess say thank you for bringing this conversation to um, millennial mental health and hopefully we can maybe have you back on in the future we can talk about it more because i really think this could be helpful to a lot of people both just building awareness as well as maybe some um, tips and tools that we've mentioned in here so thank you for coming on emily thank you for having me all right take care